Last week, if you're here, we talked about rightly dividing the word. If we're going to study the Bible, if others are going to have a good understanding of the scriptures, then they do need to make sure that they have um, an understanding of the Bible. The Bible is a logical book. And as we look at the lessons that we're going through, they're very sequential, they're very logical. Start with the foundation, and then you just continue to build up from there just as you would a house. We are at the point with lesson three where we're talking about the creation and the fall of man. Uh, this is kind of where it all begins. You know, God's an eternal being, but eventually uh, creation occurred. Man was in a proper or right state with God for a while, and then, of course, there was the fall. He mentions in that first paragraph the best place to start a story is at the beginning. Do you always have to start at the beginning of a story? No. I came across this past week an illustration from a book in the 1800s. I'd never heard of the book. The illustration was uh, of interest to me. It was something I'd never heard of before. And I don't know how large the book is, maybe a couple hundred pages. And I thought, I really don't want to. And it was apparently from a book where you've got a lot of characters. And you know, it just kind of weaves through. And to understand the illustration, you have to understand the book. Well, I really didn't want to find the book and go through maybe two or three hundred pages just to figure out one illustration. So, you know, got the old cheat notes off Wikipedia and kind of got a summation of what was taking place. And I not only failed to start at the beginning, I never, you know, really started in the middle. But you can sometimes go through and just get the basic information and you've got enough information to work with. Um, when we're dealing with the Bible, would someone necessarily have to start with the beginning? No. You know, you can say, okay, there was creation kind of like we're doing here, and they, they get the general flow, but you don't have to start with Genesis. I mean, if you start with Genesis and you start working through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you finally say, well, through Malachi, he might be dead. So we want to make sure that people have a general overview, but at the same time, um, you know, they need that information that is there in the New Testament because that's the testament under which we now live. Best place to start is at the beginning. This is where the Bible story begins. A lot of people, though, they fail to divide the Bible. Uh, you have some people, sometimes the first book that they want to study is what? That's not a hard question, so don't overthink it. First book they want to study. Let's go where? Well, okay, could be. I was thinking Revelation. Let's talk about the end times. We've got wars and we've got earthquakes and we've got famines. So let's go over there and, and read about the end of the world. Well, we just uh, finished the study of Revelation and found out that that's not quite what John had in mind. He says the meaning of Genesis, the name of the first book of the Bible, is the beginning. So that's what God is trying to tell us. This is the start of all things. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You'll note that the statement in the beginning assumes the existence of God. When we deal with people today, a lot of times they'll say, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Well, there are reasons for that. There's proof for that. But the Bible does not go out of its way to, if you will, defend itself. There are certainly a number of claims of inerrancy, especially as you read the Old Testament, you'll find, and the word of the, Jeho the, word of the Lord, the word of Jehovah came unto so-and-so. Uh, thus saith the Lord, thus saith Jehovah, depending on the translation. So there certainly are statements uh, more than a thousand times in the Bible. Read about statements that this information has come from God. It is information that God wants man to you know, think about and do. But the Bible almost assumes the existence of God. Now, if you were somewhat skeptical, you might, not, you might say, now, wait a minute. Uh, if the Bible assumes the, the existence of God, then you're saying that Christianity is a system without proof. No. I'm simply saying that the Bible makes that assumption. It does not go out of its way to say that God exists. But we do have some evidence for God. If you were to deal with somebody this week who says, I don't believe in God, or at least I don't believe in the God of the Bible, 
how might you try to persuade that individual? What might you offer as far as evidence? What could you bring forth and say, here are some of the reasons that I believe in God? All right, that would be one. As we go back and we look at Bible prophecy, hundreds of years in advance, specific things were said. We almost got into that Wednesday night and didn't quite have time for it. But whether it's a prophecy about Christ, you've got information about Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, um, ancient people like Cyrus and so forth, um, you know, uh, various kings, prophecies about them, and the predictions were specific. So you'd have to say, what kind of book? How can that uh, have happened? So that would be one great proof. Yeah, a woman, um, a virgin was going to bring forth a child, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Uh, plenty of those. What else might she use? Okay, uh, you have there an argument from design. That's an old argument, but it is a sound argument. It's a very powerful argument. Uh, you know, when we look at the building, would we just conclude the Goshen had a big windstorm way back when? Kind of passed over the lumber yard, and there was the electrical supply company, and there was a plumbing place down there, and lo and behold, uh, everything just came together. We've got pews and lights and walls and everything else. All wired up. Well, nobody believes that. If you have something that's been designed, there must be a designer. As we look at the human body, the, you know, when you begin to break it down, and I am by no means a doctor and no, by no means school in physiology and, and all those kinds of things, but when you begin to study the human body, I do not know how anybody can go through medical school and be an atheist. When you begin to look at the cells in the body, you know, just what is involved in a single cell, when you begin to look at the various systems that we have, the nervous system, uh, the reproductive system, and so forth, uh, it's just absolutely amazing, and there is design there. It's like somebody looking at a computer and saying, well, that just, you know, happened one day. Uh, You know, lo and behold, given enough time, the computer just showed up. Uh, It doesn't work that way. If there is design, there must be a designer. Well, if we see design and conclude that there's a designer on a small scale, that would be a watch, that would be a building, that would be a computer and so forth. When we then look at the heavens and look at the earth, what's the conclusion? We're forced to. There's got to be a designer. Now that fact, does it in and of itself tell us who or what the designer is? No, I mean there, there could be a thousand gods for all we know because uh, all we can say is that there is some power there is some force that has shown obvious design in the world. When you begin to look at the solar systems, you begin to look at how close our planet is to the sun, just a fraction closer or a fraction further away, we would either freeze to death. You know, the eye camera was based on the eye and so forth. There is just a ton of information out there. That is by no means the moral, the only argument. There's also the moral argument. And this is where society really fails today. It's a big problem for America. As we look at our country, there seems to be a decreasing emphasis on God. Let's not have a standard. Let's not use the Bible as a standard. Where do we read about that in the Old Testament? Every man decided to do what was right in his own eyes. And that's where society wants to go. Let's let everybody make the decision. You choose what you want to do, good, evil, or indifferent. We're going to choose what we want to do. But that ultimately doesn't work because what do you have to have? There's got to be some basis for morality, doesn't there? Where are you going to get that? One country could say that this is our basis, another country could say that this is our basis, but if there is no overruling, if there is no overriding standard, then you have no standard for right and wrong, hence you go back to the time of the judges. Uh, so there are other arguments as well as far as God, and then you can begin to say, well, okay, um, you know, what book or what books claim to be from God? Has this God 
or have the powers that have designed things revealed anything to us. Somebody says, well, over here we've got the Quran. Let's look at it. Over here somebody says, we've got the Book of Mormon. Let's look at it. Uh, another group says, um, you know, the David Koresh, the Davidians, uh, you know, to use a more recent example, they would say, this is our revelation from God. Well, let's check it out. Let's see what kind of proof we have. And then, Glenda, as you mentioned, uh, Ray 2, predictive prophecy, when you begin to find those kinds of things, which there is no explanation for except that it is a non-human product, uh, then the Bible comes out on top of things. So that's been done for several years. We thankfully kind of on this side of the process rather than the people who were trying to sort that out way back when. But the Bible is an amazing book, so uh, it makes sense that the Bible does not, uh, it almost assumes the existence, existence of God rather than trying to prove it. Anything that you want to add or ask based on what we've said so far? talk about you know how how this campground was formed and 237 million years ago potato creek was mm -hmm. in the process of being formed mm -hmm. there you know it cracks me up and that's that's our state park system. Yeah. Well, there was another one. You may have seen this one on the news. Uh, it pops up every once in a while. People will look at a rock, and they will say, well, let's use for the sake of argument, they would say that man was not here 10 million years ago. And they'll find a rock, and they'll say the rock is over 9 million years old. Something happens to that rock. And th this has happened on multiple occasions. That rock gets cracked open. Maybe it's dropped or something, and... Would you like to take a wild shot in the dark as far as what's found inside? If not a fossil, a hammer or some other tool. And can you imagine the egg on the face of the scientists when they're asked? Um, that rock was created when man wasn't here. And yet as some things were being formed, a hammer formed inside of it. Where'd that hammer come from? They have no answer. And unless a person just closes their eyes, and I'll give you an illustration of this, which I think several of us can identify with, uh, unless a person closes their eyes, you have to say there was somebody that was using the thing. That just didn't somehow form. Anybody ever watch Planet of the Apes? Okay, do you remember? I can't, I'd have to go back and look at the episode, but do you remember where you had Dr. Zaya? Uh, the human, he was, uh, you know, headed off with a couple apes, and they were out there. They get to the cave that the scientists, you know, the uh, monkey and his wife, or ape and his wife, I guess it wasn't the monkey, uh, but the ape and his wife, they had done some excavations in that cave. And you remember the scene where there was a doll? Dr. Zaya, look. And Zaya finally admitted that, yes, humans were here before apes, at least as far as the, uh, you know, storyline goes. And over the years, I've thought about the image from that uh, movie at various times. That there are people, they really know better. They've studied the Bible, they've studied the universe enough to know that there is just no way that this stuff just could have happened. Um, you know, going back to the arguments for God, are things getting better or are things getting worse as far as the universe? Things winding up or winding down? Down. All right, if you have things winding down, it's just like a wristwatch. If you have one of the old watches where you wind it up, for that to wind down, what first has to occur? You've got to wind, wind it up. So if the universe is winding down, then there had to be a startup process. When was it? Somebody says, well, that was, that was 100 million years ago. Well, fine. I can work with that. What wound it up 100 million years ago? Well, that was 200. Well, okay, let's go back 200 million years. Let's go back a trillion years. We can go back as far as you want. But for things to exist, there has to be a, what do we find? In the beginning. And we know that matter is not eternal. 
Matter is created, so where did it all begin? And that's just the big question for scientists. But a lot of kids, um, you know, they're impressed by people with some fancy degrees and so forth, and parents don't know anything, preachers don't know anything, the Bible is uh, just some, some kind of uh, you know, old book filled with superstitions, and yet that's not where the evidence takes people. Anybody else have a thought? Okay, let's go back to that first paragraph. He says, the Bible writer supposing that any person with ordinary intelligence, and sometimes that's a problem, uh, they lose their common sense. But anybody with ordinary intelligence, a little common sense, can see the handiwork of God on every side. Um, he says, uh, Bible writers do not waste space on that, that uh, because it should be evident to all. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. You know, as we think about this, as far as... Um, Belief in a supreme being. He mentions that. I think I overlooked that. He says man has always naturally believed in a supreme being. There have been exceptions to that, but generally that's true. And in countries like this one, you see that indicated all over. If you go, and I know that there are a lot of attempts right now to try to eradicate religion, especially Christianity from our society, but that's going to be really difficult to do. Um, if you go out, especially in this area, and you start looking at some cemeteries, what do you find? Bible verses find some crosses. And our culture has just been, as we go back and we look at the founding of our nation, it has been permeated, literally, uh, some of the city names. Don't we have some city names that reflect information from the Bible? We're, we're in one right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the land of Goshen, right? I always know that somebody doesn't know anything about the Bible. Oh, up there in Goshen, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's where we are. Um, where's another one? All right, city of brotherly love, phileo, Greek word for love. Any others that come to mind? All right, yep. Um, some of them, maybe people may, took a name from the Bible and didn't necessarily pick a good name, but uh, because of what it was associated with. Anything else? Yeah, I've been there, took some pictures. So, uh, and that's not the only place that's called hell on the earth. There are somewhere around seven places. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I believe it's definitely less than ten. So, uh, you do find those kinds of things. And the Bible uh, has had a great influence, and you would expect that from God. Did you have another thought? Okay. Days of creation, the second paragraph, he says, we're not told when the beginning was. It really doesn't matter, but he is correct in that statement. And it is useless for us to speculate. Sometimes people do that. Uh, it does seem to me the book of Jude can be used to establish this. I think it's consistent with science as well that um, I would argue for what's commonly called a young earth. Uh, that is, the earth has been here about 6,000 years as far as what I can tell. We do not know that after God created the earth, uh, we do know that after God created the earth, it was without form and void. The design that we see, uh, it took a little while for that to uh, be formed up by God. And I don't mean millions of years or tens of thousands of years, but, you know, it's created and then, okay, we've got to go ahead and start sifting through this and sorting it out. How long it remained, he said, in this condition, we've not been informed. Sometime later, however, God placed the world in its present natural state. Then you begin to look at the days of creation. Um, and I'm going to kind of take a, a quick side journey here after we get through this. On the first day of creation, he made light and created day and night. Heaven called the firmament was called the second day. On the following days, he created the heavenly bodies and the members of the vegetable and animal kingdoms uh, with each species of plant and animal bringing forth after its kind. 
Last of all, on the sixth day, he made man in his own image. On the seventh day, God rested from his labor. So we've, uh, I think I'll say that information at various times, so we're not going to go back and specifically look at a lot of creation information, but I do want to make this point. How many heavens are there? Okay. I think three is probably going to be the answer that you're going to get in most Bible classes. Two follow-up questions. Why do you think most people would say there are three heavens? Well, you've got the right thought, but let's revise it a little bit. It was Paul, and it's over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's take a look at that. I want to show you something. The line of thought that I just laid out was my line of thought for a long time. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've revised my thought. Who wants to pick this up for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. All right, Steve's got it first. Paul says there was this man, many, including me, think he was describing himself, whether or not that was the case is not material to this class. But he says, I knew this man, he was caught up to the third heaven. Now let's draw a parallel statement. Well, let me make this point first. A lot of people have seen that, the third heaven, and they assume that that's it. If I were to tell you today, go down to the third stoplight, what would you not be able to conclude from that statement? Would you conclude, let me help you a little bit, would you conclude that there's not a fourth stoplight? No. No. Not necessarily. That could be the case. That could be there are only three lights at the end of the road. And then you're going to be at the end of the road. But when I say go to the third stoplight, I don't necessarily tell you anything about the fourth, do I? I think over the years people have looked at this and they've said, caught up to the third heaven. And the assumption has been that there is not a fourth. Or there could be a fifth or more beyond that. But I think I've come to the conclusion that there are four heavens. I'm not going to base my life on that. But let's see if we can reason this out. Whether you believe in three or four, what would the first heaven be? All right, the sky, the firmament. Heaven two would be space. If there's four, what might three be? Which is also referred to as Hades. It's the realm of the dead. So if there were four then, the sky, outer space, Hades, number four would be heaven, which would refer to, well, or, or four would be the eternal resting place for the saved. And I do believe that that's right. Now, if that's true, assuming for just a minute that that's right, doesn't that put a new spin on Hades? the place where people go after they die? Paul said, I've heard what kind of words if he's talking about the Hadean realm when he says, I've gone to the third heaven? I've heard unspeakable words. And apparently they were not bad words. 
I find that to be very, very interesting that if this is God's description for Hades, that place that we saw from the book of Revelation in our study of that book that is going to be what's going to happen to Hades at the end of time, the Lord comes back, death and Hades are both going to be destroyed. So if Hades is, maybe we can use the word glorious, if it is that special, that glorious, that wonderful, what's that tell you about heaven? It's got to be a lot better than that because that's going to be eternal. So when you hear that word heaven, you might, like I say, maybe I'm wrong, but you might give some consideration to that going back and looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But I do not believe it's fair to look at that and say the third heaven and conclude there's maybe not a fourth. Because we wouldn't do that with secular things if, if we use a stoplight illustration. Glenda? There are some people who believe that, and that is an interesting idea. Uh, let's take a look at Matthew 12. I'm going to read Matthew 12. I may have to look. Uh, verses 39 and 40 are what come to mind, but that may not be right. It is Matthew 12. This is not the only time. There are probably about five or six times we find statements like this uh, in the Bible. And again, I don't know that I want to stake my life on it, but it does seem reasonably convincing. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Mm-hmm. When we find statements in the Bible, they fall into one of two categories. It's either a literal statement or it's a figurative statement. And one basic rule of language, we apply this to the Bible as well, a passage is understood literally unless there's a compelling reason to understand it figuratively. Uh, for example, in the book of Revelation, you've got this um, you know, seven-headed dragon uh, you know, pulling a third of the stars down from heaven. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And you've got a lamb that always wins over the dragon. Well, again, literally, that's, I mean, if you had a literal dragon that's got seven heads able to pull the stars down from heaven with its tail, uh, how many times is the lamb going to win against that kind of creature if you're dealing in literal terms? It's never going to succeed. It's always going to fail. Uh, so you have information like that in Revelation. Uh, and now as we look at Matthew 12, 39 and 40, you have to ask, was Jesus speaking literally or was he speaking figuratively? Look at the word earth. I mean, why did he use that word? He said, I'm going to die. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the great fish. The Son of Man is going to spend how many days? days. All right. That refers to what? The three days. Two. All right. He's, he's going to die. And uh, he's going to be away from the um, people, that you know, the apostles and so forth. And he says, where am I going to go? The heart of the earth. When we talk about the heart of something, what do we say? Let's get to the heart of the matter. What do we mean? Let's get to the... All right, or the center of it. Let's go to the core. So he said he was going to go to the center of the earth. Now, why would he say that information? Why would he use an illustration if that's not accurate? So, to answer your question, Glenda, and this is not the only passage where we find this kind of idea, and it's a rather old idea, but there are some, and I'm inclined to think along these lines, to me it seems to be fairly sound reasoning, I'm inclined to think that Hades is at the center of the earth. Now, from the, and part of the reason that I think about that, and you know, if that's, I got your hand on, so I'll come back to you. Um, if you remember some of the science classes, uh, what's at the center of the Earth? Yeah, it's it's hot there. 
And, you know, it's been actually described by scientists, they've actually referred to it as a lake of fire. Now, whether or not you want to believe that, whether or not that's true, we do know, based on current science, that that is the state. And it is certainly consistent with what we find with Hades. It would also be consistent with the fact that the earth is going to be destroyed, Second Peter chapter 3, when the Lord recomes, when the Lord returns, and Hades is also going to be destroyed. Now, somebody says, well, you know, I can understand maybe the wicked going there, but what about the righteous? Well, if God can deal with the wicked there, he certainly would have the ability to deal with the righteous. So exactly how that works out, um, I do not know. I will tell you this as well. You can Google this, and not that I necessarily believe that it's true, but I do think that maybe it reflects some ancient knowledge. Does anybody know that there are, I'm going to say six or seven, I believe that there are six, but I'd have to go back and look. Uh, there are some people who have actually looked at various places on the earth, and, and there, there, there are actually some places where you find uh, inscriptions that they refer to them as the gates to hell. Anybody know that there are actually places scattered around the globe that have for many, many years, I mean, we're talking about thousands of years, been looked at as the gates to hell? Portals, yes, that would be a great word. Thank you very much for that. Um, where did that idea originate? Why did that idea originate? Well, some of the stuff that comes up, you have sometimes some ancient knowledge that may not be exactly right, but it goes back to something that may have been true. Uh, so you look at that, and there is some sick, scary stuff. You, you'll find some images, uh, for example, some very old images, and um, there's, well, I'm not going to expand on that too much more because... It's been a little while since I've looked at it, but um, you can easily find that information on Google. You can probably see some videos. Uh, I do know that in one case, um, if I remember right, there was a fella, uh, it was a volcano opening that was regarded as the gate to hell, and he actually climbed down there and got some pretty interesting footage. So uh, there is a lot of historical information that would be tied in with that, whether or not you accept it as, as a partially true or um, complete fabrication. Don? The physical body, right. right. His spiritual being. When he went to paradise, yes. uh, he doesn't say where that's located. I mean, but after he was resurrected. So you think that during the three days, his spirit went to, to uh, the center of the earth? Uh, let's back up a little bit. There were two or three things there in the question. Let's look at it from our perspective today. What happens today? Remember in the book of James, what without the what is what? Body without the spirit is dead. Using James chapter 2, today people die. Do they not? James 2? Okay. Based on James 2, what happens at death? The spirit leaves the body. So we've got the body here. body could be in a funeral home. The body could be buried in the ground. As far as a casket, it could be a mausoleum. But the body is still with us. Did that happen with Jesus? The body still with us. Well, with 2,000 years ago, was the body still there? Sure. Yes, it was. I mean, there was nothing mysterious that happened to the body. All right, using that information from James chapter 2, what happened to Jesus' eternal spirit? Are you saying the body number was still there too, just like we are? Okay, let me ask the question. I think I may not be communicating very well, so I apologize for that. When we think about death today, the body separates from the spirit. Did Jesus go through that exact same process? 
Okay, everybody agrees on that. Okay, now let's take a quick look at Acts 2. Got an Old Testament quotation from David, Acts 2, starting with verse 25. Um, if you want a little bit of the context, you can go back to Acts 2.22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God unto you by mighty works, and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, um, even as ye yourselves know. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel for knowledge of God, ye by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. So he's, uh, he died, and then there was that separation we talked about. God raised him up. And then it goes back to say in verse 25, talking about Jesus, the time of his death, for David saith concerning him, the Lord, I beheld the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, I should not be moved. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, moreover my flesh shall dwell in hope, because thou will not leave my soul where? Hades. Where did Jesus go? He went to Hades, which is the realm of the dead. All right? Um, you have there that same realm described, that same place described in Luke chapter 16 with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There is that Hadean realm. There is the realm of the dead. You also have it described. Uh, Jesus, he's there on the cross. The one thief is penitent. Today said, uh, the Lord said, today you're going to be with me where? You're going to be with me in paradise. So Hades, realm of the dead, paradise, the same place that I can tell that Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So, Physical body remains here on the earth, entombed, or it could be out in the open. Same thing happened with Jesus. In that case, his body was entombed. His uh, spirit, if you will, uh, the eternal soul, if you will, uh, Acts 2, it did go into that Hadean realm. And if what I suggested uh, as a possibility is correct, then yes, he would have been in the heart of the earth done. And after the three days, he came, his spirit came back yes. into the body. Yes, resurrection and then all the other it's events. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the spirit is taken to Hades. Wherever you think of that process as taking place, heart of the earth or maybe outer space, you know, past Pluto for all I know. But uh, wherever that is, resurrection, John 5, 28 and 29, the Lord comes back. Everybody's raised up, judgment off to heaven or hell. So with physical re- resurrection? Yes. Just, just physical remains of the body. Uh, once again. There's no physical remains of the body. Still, Can you expand on that question? When well, you, no physical remains of the body. Well, a Christian a thousand years ago would not right. have a body. Yeah. It'd be dust, right? Yes. The spirit comes back to that body. In, in, well, well, you've got a couple of things. You're both right. First Corinthians 15. Remember, Paul talks about the transformation. He raises it up. Um, there are some things that we don't know. Is God going to raise up every single cell? We're not going to need that in eternity. So, whatever is raised up, um, you know. You have Paul and John also talking about you know the transformation of the body. It's going to be a new body. It's going to be unlike what we have now, and so forth. Um, so, and you know, Paul says, First um, Corinthians chapter fifteen. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed, transformed. Uh, so, would God need to raise up a hundred? I mean, could He raise up a hundred percent of the body? Absolutely. Uh, is He going to raise up you know uh, every last gray hair? Is He going to raise up every last you know wrinkle and uh, you know every every last you know, uh, you know, rash, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know. But it's going to be so fast that even if he were to do that, the message that you get from Scripture is that it's not going to matter. Because there is going to be that reunion, there is going to be that reuni- uh, reunion, and then there's going to be that transformation, and that's the body that we'll have in eternity. Bonnie? And then Glenda. I, I remember Keith being 
things that might say, and I think that's a God question. Well, and there are some questions that are in that category, and this is certainly one, but we do have the basic information that there will be that resurrection, there will be the uh, reuniting uh, in some sense of body and soul, instant transformation just as an eye blinks, and then people are set up for eternity. So, but yes, uh, you can only go so far with some of these things, and on that one, that's about as far as I know to go. Glenda, you had a hand up, and now your head's down. I need. Uh, I'm just this. This is in Ephesians 4:9. Okay. All right. Another question. Okay. Was in the context when in Genesis, heavens, the word heaven does not use the same context as we use it today, right? As far as the spiritual heaven. The heavens, if we look out, we say we look to the heavens that we were talking about. Space, Space, planets, and suns, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This kind of gets you back into the God question. There are two things that might be useful to consider there. When we think about God, I mean, you know, he's everywhere. There's, there's not a single place that he's not. Uh, so if you have an eternal being, you know, we think in terms of location and homes. And God is not really set up like that. But maybe to kind of bring it down to our level, if he's eternal, there's always been some place where he's been. If you have something, it's got to be somewhere, does it not? Okay. Is God something? Yes. So there has to be some sense in which he was somewhere. I can see no other conclusion. Now, the question is, where was this something before the things that we know existed? Well, here again, you're you're getting into some pretty deep water. But let me toss this out for your consideration. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. How's the rest of the verse go? Before, that's a key word, before the foundation of the world. As we thus think about heaven, pulling that from Matthew chapter 25, when was the place for the saved created? Well, before. Prior to what I would, you know, to use your wording, uh, prior to the creation of the heavens and so forth. Now, exactly when was that? Will saved people be allowed to enter heaven in the sense that, that that's God's eternal dwelling place? Will there be um, something in between God's... Again, this, from one perspective, doesn't make a lot of sense biblically, but to kind of lay it out for us. Was there something as far as, here's God's eternal heaven. Here's the creation of heaven and earth. Was there something in between these two times that God put together for man? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, because, again, you kind of go back there to the God question, Bonnie. Um, but he does say it was created before the um, uh, earth was. Um, but you also have, for example, Second Peter chapter 3, it talks about the burning up of all things. Um, and I'm inclined, again, it's maybe a semi-educated guess, I'm inclined to think that wherever God's presence was, if you will, prior to the creation of all things, that that's, that's the reward. That's where his people will spend eternity. So the fourth heaven, because we were God's always been. Yes, the exactly. That, that, that's my current thinking. Because okay. nobody's ever been to heaven. Right. Well, and that's another thing. I think it's in John chapter 3. Um, let's see if we can find that. No man has descended, ex- or no man's ascended except the one that descended. Maybe John 3, I'm thinking about verse 31. Um, 
Well. Anybody see anything like the word ascended in John 3? Oh, that sounds better. John 3, verse 13. Yeah, I had it flipped. Instead of 31, it's 13. Thank you very much, Steve. And no when, no one. Now remember, John, is he writing this book, you know, about 30 A.D., the time Jesus is on the earth? No, this is written several years after. So bear that in mind. John is writing several years after the Lord came, died, and went back to heaven. And then he says, and no one, unless you try to say, well, this applied to the time of when Jesus was on the earth. But um, And no one has ascended into heaven. Nobody. But he that descended out of heaven. Then John says, let me explain to you who this was. Who was the one who descended out of heaven? All right, which is Christ. Now, if you tie that in, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Don. Thanks, Steve, for finding that passage. Uh, if you tie that in with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what's that suggest to you? Did Paul go up to the heaven in the sense of heaven? I can't see that from John 3, verse 13. That's one more reason to incline me to conclude that when the, four, when the three heavens are talked about there, uh, he was not saying there are three and that's it. But I read that passage and probably heard that passage taught that way for a long time. But like I say, I, I've revised my view. Maybe again, I'll change it back at some point, but to me this makes sense. Hey, they were translated. Well, you have to, once again, we know that in the Bible, words can mean just like, um, you know, Father. That word can mean multiple things. You have to look at the context. And when you look at the word heaven, we know there are at least three of them, right? Second Corinthians chapter 12. So when it says they were translated, they were taken up into heaven, if you, on a very cursory level, read that, you would conclude, well, where'd they go? Well, they're up with God. Well, John 3, verse 13 Really hard to conclude that. But if you look at Second Corinthians chapter 12, he went to the third where? Heaven. Hades. Where were they taken? James 2. Acts 2. The soul goes to Hades. They were taken to heaven in the sense that they went into the Hadean realm, the positive side of that, which the Bible identifies as paradise. If he came from heaven and he went back to heaven, we talk about two different heavens. Yes. Well, um, wait, I think I said the wrong answer to that question. If, if he came from heaven and went back to heaven, how do you get two heavens out of that? Well, if he came from God and he was from God's Father, that's coming from heaven. Yes. He sent him from heaven and then he went back to heaven. Back to the same place. Right, so that, that would be, uh, that would not be like a waiting place or anything. So that yes, exactly. Yes, I, okay. Uh, I didn't answer your question correctly, but thank you. Uh, you're right. If we, for example, say we're leaving Goshen, we're going back to Goshen, we're describing the same place. And yes, that would be that fourth heaven. Nobody, he says, has, has come from there but him. Very good. Anybody else? Well, unlike last week, we're not going to get through the lesson. But uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully we learn some things. Yeah, we're not going to be that good. Well, we were able in five minutes to knock it all out. But let's look at the next section. The fall of man. So we've got man created, everything's starting off well, there's always some troublemaker, there's always somebody to kind of come in and stir the pot, and that's exactly what happened with humanity. Fall of man, God placed the first man, Adam, in a beautiful garden, that of course was in Eden, and we talked about this in the Revelation class, you have you know, things like the tree of life, you've got that garden, what's the counterpart that in that Revelation study that we saw in the Garden of Eden? Man, fellowship with God in the garden in the beginning. Now Christ comes. Fellowship with God where? In the church. 
So as you look at a lot of the things, you know, we had the tree of life there, and now, doesn't God have a tree of life? The water of life? Well, yeah. The whole gospel system. You've got the church, you've got the information and the scriptures about God, uh, Christ has shed his blood, all those things. Because it wasn't good for man to be alone, God caused a deep sleep to come upon him and from his side. He took a rib from which he made a woman who became Adam's wife. Um, Adam named her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Today people come along, this jumps ahead a little bit, but people say, well, if you believe in the Bible and you think that Adam and Eve had some kids, then uh, where'd Cain get his wife? Anybody ever have that question asked? All right. Well, I mean, I don't know that that, that's a difficult question. Where'd he get his wife? (laughs) That's answer number one. What about answer number two? Where'd Cain get his wife? All right, it had to be his sister. And, you know, we've had some intermarriage in this country and elsewhere, um, and that creates some problems, but, I mean, it it does, if you will, work. But when you go back and you look at the gene pool way back when, if you had Adam and Eve in a state of absolute perfection, you would not expect to find those kinds of difficulties that we have today uh, because people, you know, from the same uh, family, from the same bloodline, uh, you know, they just... uh, they didn't have the problems. That, that. Yes. So. Yes, the bloodline attack. We have um, seen that a little bit with the Amish. I think you know you don't have to go too far back to start you know seeing some pretty close connections. So uh, if you're all there in the same area, well, that is something that you will see to one degree, to one degree or another. Uh, Let's see, a couple more minutes left. Let's see if we can get through most of the paragraph. When you look at God, uh, he gave the first couple the responsibility of keeping the garden. I find that to be an interesting lesson. When you look at the book of Genesis, God says you have a responsibility. There's some things that you need to do. Well, that sort of sets the stage as you begin to look at some other things as far as God uh, and individuals, God and people throughout time. God says, uh, you know, life isn't just about sitting around and watching TV all day. You know, don't just go out there and sit in a lawn chair and, and, and uh, enjoy the sunset every day. God says, I've got some stuff for you to do. And he makes that very manageable, but there are some things that man needs to do. And along with those responsibilities, does God have anything else that man needs to look at? Do this, but don't do this. So God says there are some positive commands, and I've also got some negative commands for you. Today, people will often act as if uh, that's a foreign idea. Well, God loves me. He can let me do whatever I want. Oh, wait a minute. That's not how the Bible starts out. Uh, So God wants the best for man, but there are some prohibitions. What was the prohibition here? God says there is a tree, and the fruit from this tree, this apple tree, no, it doesn't say apple tree, uh, the fruit from this tree will give you what? Knowledge. Knowledge. You will have a knowledge of good and evil. Now, does that mean that they didn't have a conscience? No. No. It simply means that there were some things... It's like a child. Does a child have a conscience? Yes. But does a child have a full understanding of good and evil? No. I mean, there's... And that maybe is the best illustration for the mindset of Adam and Eve. They were not stupid. Uh, They weren't like the caveman drawings that some of us saw in school and hunched over and, you know, uh, grunting, those kinds of things. Um, But there was some knowledge there that they hadn't been exposed to for a while. And God gave them a very serious warning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. If you eat this, you're going to die. Now, today it's the same kind of thing. If somebody says, if you, um, you know, eat too many Twinkies, you're going to die, what might a person conclude about that statement, assuming it's true? Hmm? 
Well, okay. Um, if we key in for a second on the death bell, you're going to die if you eat ten Twinkies. Okay, yeah, you, you don't know exactly when the death is going to occur, do you? Now, you might assume that the death is going to be instant, but they might mean if you eat ten Twinkies, you've got ten years left. So when Adam and Eve were told that they were going to die, uh, I think if you go back and you look at the original text, I'm not a Hebrew guy, um, but I believe the Hebrew text there indicates that it's going to initiate a process. Now, when you look at that, I think some people have concluded they were going to die in a spot. That's not what God told them. But um, remember, it's the tree of life. So as they're going through life, it doesn't seem like they would have suffered the normal things from aging, that everything was fine. But God warns them, if you eat of this tree, things are going to start to change. And maybe they didn't have a full comprehension of that. Just as we, as we look at life today, God warns us about sin. We may not have a full comprehension. I don't think we have a full comprehension of heaven. And the same thing is true concerning hell. I'm out of time. Yes, they did. Free will. So a lot of key lessons in the first few chapters of Genesis.